Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. We all good evening. Grab your copy of God's Word and go with me. Amen. Go with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is where we're going to be tonight. You know, and as I come to this passage here tonight, I mean, I'm, I am just reminded of how much I love uh, the method of preaching called expositional preaching. Basically, when you think about preaching, there are basically three methods of Bible preaching, okay? So maybe you've never heard it. I just want to go through these just real quickly so that you have an understanding of, 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 of these three things, okay? So one method is called topical preaching, okay? Topical preaching is where I choose a topic or a series of topics that I want to talk about. These are obviously Christian topics that are true, that we, you know, things of that nature, okay, hopefully, <laughs> anyway, all right? And then I go find the passages of the Scripture in the Bible that speak to that topic, all right? So you begin with the topic and you move to the text, okay? That's topical preaching. In other words, I don't know the texts that I'm going to use if I'm using this method until I know the topic I'm going to speak on, all right? It's very topic-driven, all right? Typically, this type of preaching doesn't have just one central text. It, it has many texts that are pulled from across the Bible that shed light on that topic, all right? Now, on the other end of that, of that continuum, I might even say the opposite of topical preaching is another method of preaching that's called expositional preaching, all right? Expositional preaching is where I choose a passage of Scripture and then dig into the text to find out what I will preach. All right? So in other words, I don't know what I'm going to preach until I know the texts I'm going to preach on. All right? So it's text-driven. All right? And then there's that middle ground, that middle approach, uh, very creatively called topical expositional. It just takes the two names and puts them together, okay? Um, and if you've been around Eastwood long, the, that's the primary diet, the primary method uh, uh, that we've utilized over the last few years is topical expositional preaching, particularly on Sunday mornings, okay? But I've used all three methods, topical, expositional, and topical expositional. Um, I'm currently using the expositional method on Sundays and Wednesdays here as we're walking through the book of Philippians, through the book of 1 Corinthians, but all three have their advantages and disadvantages, all right? They all, they all three do, all right? And all three of them are necessary at different aspects to, uh, of, of the Christian life and of, uh, of, of the pulpit ministry, all right? But I, I just want to say to you, for me personally, I, I'm convinced that expositional preaching is the most glorious to God, is the most beneficial to the congregation. Now, don't, don't misunderstand what I just said, because those other two methods are glorious and beneficial, all right? They are, absolutely they are. I mean, you ever go, you, you think about Charles Spurgeon, for instance, called the Prince of Preachers, all right? Very seldom did he take a text and actually exposit the text. I mean, he, was, he would jump in and jump off, and I mean, it was, you know, so, so it's been used by God in lots of different ways, just, but for me, I'm convinced that, uh, that, that, that expositional preaching is most glorious to God, most beneficial to the congregation. Let me just give you five quick reasons why, okay, so that you just understand where I'm coming from. Uh, first, expositional preaching brings high esteem to the Bible. All right, um, you know, it, it forces us in one essence to get out our Bibles and have it in our laps. All right, it forces us to say, What is this text saying? All right, we're digging in the Bible. Secondly, expositional preaching helps to ensure 
that what I'm saying is what God says because my preaching, my, my preaching points, my main ideas, the things I'm talking about should come right out of the text, okay? Instead of me deciding what I want to say and then finding passages that back that up, I'm going to the text and saying, what does the text say and how can I communicate that to the congregation? Third, expositional preaching keeps me from preaching about my pet peeves and my pet doctrines, all right? And I've got those. i got things that just irk me. And I would love to sit up here and tell you all about them, okay? But that would be of no benefit to you. You'd get sick of it because I'd, I'd talk about the same stuff all the time. Or maybe my pet doctrines. Maybe you've sat under preaching before where it seemed like the preacher, you know, he had a bone to pick or he, not, or he had an ax to grind, all right? I, I've sat under preaching where, where it seemed like the preacher had somebody in mind, and probably did. I'm not saying it just kind of happened. I'm saying he had somebody in mind, uh, you know, that he was preaching to in particular um, and at. And so it's just a very awkward uh, situation. I've also sat under preaching where it seemed like the same doctrine just keeps coming up again and again. It's kind of like, man, we've, we've covered that. Because let's be honest, there's only so many topics in the Bible to cover, all right? And so if we're doing topical, if that's our, if that's our diet and our approach, we'll typically cycle through them over and over again, all right? Um, and so, expositional preaching helps ensure that I'm preaching the whole counsel of God's Word and not just my pet doctrines or my pet peeves because I'm not choosing what to preach on, in essence, okay? I'm, I'm choosing the book and the text is telling me what to preach, okay? Fourth, expositional preaching, number four, delivers me from preaching to felt needs. Now, this is important, guys, because there are a lot of needs out here. And don't get me wrong, right? If there's ever a moment that needs to be addressed, there's, there's really something going on in the congregation that we need to touch on, absolutely, let's stop the, going through this book and, and, and let's go address that, okay? We have the freedom to do that. But if every week I'm trying to say, what do they need to hear this week? Is that necessarily a bad thing? Well, it can be. Not on face value, it's not. But, but again, if, if I'm thinking around, well, they've got a situation, they've got a situation, they've got a situation... How can I address them all at the same time? And so I can easily get overwhelmed by people's felt needs. Instead, I'm just going to trust in the providence of God. And it's amazing how just through the years as I preach through books of the Bible and expositionally that in that moment, we were right where we needed to be. It was just amazing to see. And finally, and what brought this to mind while I wanted to share these with you, is that fifth and finally, expositional preaching causes me to preach hard and controversial texts, okay? That's why we've gathered together tonight. <laughs> if it's just up to me to choose what passages to preach, I would rarely choose to preach passages that would be hard and difficult and pregnant with the possibility of somebody getting upset, okay? Uh, but expo expositional preaching says, it's in God's word, Ben. Preach it, okay? And so it, it draws right out the idea from, from 2 Timothy 3.16 that says, all... Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So, again, that brings us to tonight's text, all right? Uh, it's not an easy text. It's not. But I'm thankful that it's in the Bible. And because it's in the Bible, we're going to talk about it. We're going to dig in. We're going to try to understand it. And, and you may come away tonight and say, you know what? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I, I agree necessarily with him, okay? And that's okay. You be convinced of your position, and I'll do my best to preach the Word of God as best as I can under.
understanding, as I can understand it, okay? But it's in God's word, so we're going to preach it anyway. And so that's what I'm going to do tonight. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to look at the whole text tonight, that whole chapter uh, together here. So I'm going to read it, and then we're going to dig in. All right. God's word says this. It says, pursue love and earnestly, the de- and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For one who understands him, or for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want all of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring uh, you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as a flute or a harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with the tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore... One who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I'll sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if, I give thanks with, uh, if, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say, Amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying. For you may, giving, uh, you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. But in your thinking, be mature. And the law is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners. Will I speak to this people? And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speaks in tongues and outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophecy... But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or or at the most three. And each in turn, and let someone interpret. 
But if there is one to interpret, let each of them keep... Uh, if, if there's not, but if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three speakers or two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent for all can prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law uh, also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. And was it from you that the word of God came? Or, Or was it from you? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Oh my goodness, what a passage, okay? What a passage, all right. So let's pray. We're going to dig in. Father, we thank you for a chance to open your word. And uh, it's tough. Uh, there are a lot of things here, God, to dig in. And, and, and so I pray that tonight would be, a, in one sense, just a jumping off point. God, that we would go back and study and, and uh, tonight we just sort of wet our whistle in one sense to try to understand what you're saying to us here and how you want us to operate. So, Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the spirit that helps us to understand your word. And so come, spirit, uh, help us to understand what, uh, what God has written. It's in Christ's name we ask this. Amen. All right. So as I look at this, 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 this chapter here, the takeaway that I keep, because there's, there's a theme in this, all throughout this, and the theme is this, it's tonight's takeaway is this, is that the worship gathering is foremost for the building up of the saints. I think that is primarily what Paul is saying out here. Now, he gets into some specifics here to help us understand how we can do that and how to quit doing the junk that the Corinthians were doing, okay? But the primary thrust of this here is that the worship gathering, when Christians come together, the primary purpose that they come together for is to build up each other, to build up the saints. You see it in verse 3, upbuilding, encouragement, consolation. You see it in verse 4, builds up the church. You see it in verse 5, the church may be built up. You see it in verse 17 when he says, they're not built up if you do that. You see it in verse 26, let all things be done for building up. All right. So that's the theme. It's over and over and over again in this passage here is that the worship gathering is foremost for the building up of the saints. And I, I want to say this at the, at the outset here, guys, is that Paul's emphasizing something really important here that we in the 21st century church need to hear and to heed. The worship gathering, let me say it again, is primarily for the building up of the saints. But let's be honest, so much of the church culture that we, that we swam in over the years is set against this sort of thinking. Okay? So much of the church culture that, 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 we've, that, we've, that we've been a part of, uh, so many of the churches that we've, that we've been a part of, they've, they've latched onto the spirit of revivalism and the seeker-focused worship, okay? Where there's little instruction given to those who are already Christians, okay? They're focused on 
getting saved, getting saved, getting saved, getting saved. I remember this lady in Alexandria. We, we, one, one year, we took a whole year, and we called it No Home Untouched. And we, we literally, we mapped it out, Christy and I organized it, to go out and to knock on every door in the little city of Alexandria there. Basically a square mile with, with about 700 houses in it. Go and to knock on every door in that place and see where they stood with the Lord to try to win them to Christ, okay? And one lady that we came to in particular, we got to talking about church, and she said, I have no reason to go to church because I'm already saved. I said, well, what do you mean? No, no, church is for saved people. She said, not the churches I grew up in. Every Sunday when I would go, they'd say, you need to get saved. And I'd say, well, I've been saved. Well, somebody else needs to get saved, and that's why we're here today. We're here to get people saved. And so you know what she decided to do? She said, I'm just going to stay home. Because I found a man on TV who will open up the Word of God and teach me the whole counsel of the Word of God. And like you often know, preachers on TV aren't necessarily the best preachers to be listening to. It's amazing how guys who are kind of squirmy, even heretical, uh, are given the money to get on TV. I don't know how that happens, but nevertheless it does. Uh, And so she had latched on to Arnold Murray. Uh, and the Shepherd's Chapel. And maybe, man, he's on like, they've got like their own channel, it seems, okay? I mean, he's, I, we, still, we still have him. We've cut down our cable or our satellite to like almost nothing. We've got like 10 channels, it seems, okay? And yet Arnold Murray, I can still watch Arnold Murray like 24 hours a day, okay? Uh, so she had lashed onto this guy, and I said, what are you going to do when Arnold dies? She said, I'll just watch his videos. <laughs> I mean, she was so, because again, in her mind, he was willing, he was, the only, he was the only preacher she'd ever been under who was willing to open up the whole word of God and move past, just get saved, okay? And so many of the church, so much of our churches are that way. Or, or take about the, think, think about this, about the seeker-focused movement, exemplified by Willow Creek in particular, under Bill Hybels in the 90s, early 2000s, or, or even today, North Point Church under Andy Stanley. Both of those are very seeker-focused churches, and they both watered down teaching to where it just kind of focuses on life lessons aimed to offend nobody, okay? Willow Creek, for instance, and this is true, y'all. This is absolute truth. Willow Creek told their church members at one point that they needed to learn to be self-feeders. Don't come to our worship services expecting to be fed, they told them. You need to learn to go feed yourself, during the week because this church gathering is for the lost people. That's what they said. Or take Andy Stanley, for instance. Andy Stanley with North Point, he's been preaching in the last couple of years, especially the need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. In other words, let's, let's, let's just stop talking about this Old Testament stuff. Let's just focus on the resurrection of Jesus. Don't worry about all these <laughs> Old Testament stories that modern folks just don't believe. If we want to win people... We can't be talking about like the, the creation being in seven days. We can't talk about this worldwide flood. We can't be talking about the, 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 the sun standing still during a battle and fire falling from heaven and all this stuff. We need to unhitch the Bible. We need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. And so again, with the, with the, with the impetus, with the, with the motivation, he says, of reaching lost people, okay? But again, they miss the fact that the worship gathering, the church gathering, is, is, is for the saints, right? They've forgotten the role of church leaders revealed in Ephesians 4. 
verses 11 through 14, where it says this. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Beloved, again, let me say it one more time. The worship gathering is foremost for the building up of the saints. So yeah, we're going to preach the gospel every week, right? In greater and smaller ways, in bigger and smaller portions, okay? Because there's always going to be a mixture of lost people and saved people here. Every Sunday, every Wednesday, every time we get together, we're still going to make sure the gospel is in there, okay? But the bulk of our time, the priority of our time is to be given to the building up of the saints, We give these two or three hours a week, okay, for the worship gathering, for the saints, so that we can then turn them loose, turn you loose, turn me loose, the other 165 hours to go and win the lost, okay? So the worship gathering is foremost for the building up of the saints. So, therefore, getting to where we're going here in the text then, therefore, what we do and how we do it must build up the saints, okay? If this worship service that he's talking about here when the Christians gather, if it's primarily for the building up of the saints, if we're doing something that's not accomplishing that purpose, we got to stop, all right? And that's basically what he's saying here. You guys are doing things that are working against, he's saying to the Corinthians, working against the building up of the saints. They were really struggling. First off, we've already read 1 Corinthians 11, They were all messed up in their practice of the Lord's Supper. It was building up nobody. In fact, it was tearing the church apart, wasn't it? And then we find in in chapter 12 that they were jealous of each other's gifting. They said, I I want what that guy has, or I want what that woman has. I don't want my piddly old gift. I want theirs. Especially the miraculous gifts, because that's the one that got all the attention. They wanted the attention. And apparently they really, 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 really wanted the gift of tongues. And you can imagine why. I mean, think about it on the day of Pentecost when the the apostles and and those that were gathered in the upper room, and they began to speak in tongues. I mean, everybody in Jerusalem stopped. What is going on? I mean, it's attention getting. But here in chapter 14, we find that Paul has to put tongues in its place. And bring order to the situation, all right? He, he needed them to understand that the worship gathering is foremost for the building up of the saints. And because that's true, y'all, it affects how spiritual gifts are exercised in the gathering. So here in our text, four actions tonight that will help us build up the saints when we gather together. First, the first two are quick. We're going to hit them quick. Is that a question? Yeah. Can I ask you a question about the speaking in tongues? No, I, I may get to it, but you can ask it and I, I may cover it. Go for it. Yeah, that's a good idea. Right. I don't think it had. I may be wrong. Do you all know of a time that it happened before Pentecost? I don't think so because think about this for just a moment. Well, we say that. Okay. So in one sense, yes, it had happened before. Okay. And the day when God judged the people for the Tower of Babel. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, that's right. So we're going to get to that. All right. So when we think about tongues... All right, we'll define it here in a moment. 
So, so, so the Pentecost is the reversal of the Tower of Babel where God came down and confused the languages to divide people. Here in Pentecost, God gives the gift of tongues to bring the church together, okay? All right, so we're, yeah, we'll define more of that here in just a moment. So first, prior to our, the first thing we need to do, if we're going to do this, if we're going uh, to build up the saints in the worship gathering, we need to prioritize showing love in the worship gathering. All right, that's what he spent the whole chapter 13 about. I'm not going to stick on this for very long at all, just to say, you want a spiritual gift? That's great. Desire love first. He even says it emphatically here in verse 1. He says it with two words, pursue love, pursue love. And we talked all about that last week, okay? So if you weren't here last week, uh, it's on the website. You can go back and hear it um, uh, and, and, and understand more about why love is better than all those other things, why it is most important, okay? Secondly, though, if we're going to build up saints in the worship gathering when we come together is we need to pursue the use of spiritual gifts in the worship gathering. I think that's important for us to see here, right? He says here in verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, okay? So in other words, yeah, love's the priority. But once we aim at that, that's not the only thing we should aim for. That's just what we should aim for most of all because spiritual gifts are not unimportant. They are very important, all right? So as we're focusing on love and loving each other and, and, and manifesting the, the, the love of Christ together, we need to pursue, he says, these spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 talks all about that because we need each other's gifting, all right? Wes is an eye and I'm an ear, all right? I, I won't know where to go if I don't have Wes's eyes, okay? We're one body together, and so we need to pursue those for the good of the body, for the building up of the body, all right? So chapter 12 made that clear that we need to pursue spiritual gifts um, in the Christian life and in the worship gathering. We see it, we see it every week, all right? Different spiritual gifts. Um, of course, the gift of teaching, uh, you know, uh, is, is, is there, you know, in the pulpit. Um, but also there's all sorts of giftings that we see that go on behind the scenes, all right? So pursue the use of spiritual gifts in the worship gathering. All right, number three. We'll camp out here for just a minute, Okay because this is the bulk of where we're going as far as what he's addressing here. So number three is that we need to prefer the gift of prophecy over the gift of tongues in the worship gathering. Now this is, first off, let me say this. Um, He is not saying that there has to be prophecy and there has to be tongues in the worship gathering, okay? It's not in that way, okay? He's not saying that it has to be present. But he's saying if these gifts are there... All right, then we need to prefer the gift of prophecy over the gift of tongues in the worship gathering. So let's get a couple of definitions here because this is important. Definitions matter. Right? That's kind of what you're getting at, right? Definitions matter. First off, what is the gift of prophecy? And, and, and folks may differ on this. Uh, you know, on what exactly is the gift of prophecy, okay? New Testament prophecy is a bit different. When you look at the scripture, it is a bit different from Old Testament prophecy, okay? So Old Testament prophecy was isolated to only a few select people. And we often think of prophecy as telling the future. That, 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 that is an aspect of prophecy. But prophecy was actually, basically, a prophet in the Old Testament was like a lawyer. Actually, it was like a prosecutor in a, in, a, in, a, in a court of law. They were covenant prosecutors. In other words, they would stand before the people and say, 
God the judge has found you guilty. And if you don't change, something's going to happen bad, okay? You will be punished. You will be whatever, okay? And so they were often not just foretelling. They were forth-telling. They were telling the truth. They were speaking for God. And so it was isolated just a few select men and women, okay? Uh, and if their, if their prophecy didn't come to pass... If they, if, they, if, they, if they prophesied something future and didn't come to pass, uh, they were to be put to death, stoned, all right? But at Pentecost, prophecy, like the Holy Spirit, was given throughout the body of Christ, okay? Acts 2, Acts chapter 2. Let's, let's look here, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. Acts 2, 14 through 21. This is really interesting, all right? This is really interesting, Acts 2, 14 through 21 says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk. They were speaking in tongues and all that. Okay. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Uh, he goes on to say several things down through there. But verse 21, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, when did the last days come to pass? When Christ came, right? Christ came and ushered in the last days, okay? So we're living in the last days, even though it's been roughly 2,000 years worth of last days. Nevertheless, we are in the age generally called the last days. So prophecy here is something that is sort of comes with, the, 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 comes with Pentecost in one sense. In fact, it's interesting here in our text tonight, and... Looking at this, 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially one certain one. And he says what? Especially that you may what? Prophesy. That's really interesting. Okay, That we should earnestly desire to prophesy. So what is, what is prophecy in, in, in a New Testament definition? All right. One could define prophecy as the speaking forth of, uh, 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 with you know, human words, something the Holy Spirit has sovereignly or spontaneously revealed to the believer. It's sort of a, a, maybe a word of knowledge, all right, or, a, or a, a special insight into the Word of God or something like that, okay? Um, now, it's never on par with Scripture. It never overcomes Scripture, right? It's always tested in light of Scripture, but nevertheless... It's basically, um, it's, it's basically something that, that comes from God. It's not based on a hunch. It's not based on a supposition. It's not based on an inference or an educated guess. It's not a new revelation. It's not a new revelation. That's right. It's not a new revelation um, in that sense. It, it, but it may be something that's, that's not known, for instance. Okay. So prophecy is, is basically the human report of, of, of something that, that's not known, all right? It, it's not necessarily predicting the future. It's also not just teaching, all right? But it's a word of knowledge revealed from God for the purpose of building up the saints. 
encouraging the saints and consoling the saints according to verse 3. You see that there in verse 3, okay? So that's, what, that, that's how we would define prophecy in this sense here in, in, in 1 Corinthians 14. And it says that something that we should seek, all right? In other words, we should seek for God to help us to know something uh, that, that's unknown, that, that's hidden in one sense. Not that we have special knowledge, or again, or that it's Trump's scripture, but that, you know, that word of knowledge. That, that, uh, and, and we'll see here in a moment how, how it works, okay, later down in the chapter, okay? So what is the gift of tongues? Now, to get to the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is a miraculous gift of being able to speak a known language that you have never learned. That's how I would define speaking in tongues. So it's a known language that you have never learned. You're speaking a known language that you have never learned. All right. So a lot of folks think that tongues are just ecstatic utterances. In other words, nonsensical utterances, angelic languages. Uh, you maybe hear people point to 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, they say, well, speaking in tongues is angelic language that no human speaks. But I don't think that's the case. I mean, again, I would make a case from Scripture, even from here in this passage, that tongues are the ability to speak a language that is known on earth that you have never learned. So I would say, again, and I say this as kindly as I can, a lot of so-called tongues today, I believe, are faked. All right? I believe they're faked. In fact, I went to an Assembly of God church um, during my high school years. Or not my high school years, but my college years. They had a great college ministry there. I never went to the class, but they offered a class on tongue speaking. You could come and practice. They would teach you how to speak in tongues. And, uh, you know, they may, they may give you a few phrases to help your tongue get going. Uh, for instance, you know, like... Um, who stole my Honda and tie my bow tie, you know, or something like that, you know, just to get you going. Not, I'm not making light. I'm not making fun. But, but honestly, they did offer tongue-speaking classes, all right? Uh, and there, one time I was in a revival with a, with a Pentecostal preacher, and uh, I was the music, I was the, I was the worship pastor at that thing, and uh, it was in a general Baptist church, so it was just a weird, it was a, it was a weird configuration, okay? So you've got this Southern Baptist, you know, once saved, always saved preacher, uh, leading worship in a church where they believe a man can be saved and then lost and then saved and then lost. And then we had a Pentecostal guy who was bringing the word that week. It was, it was just confusion, all right? But nevertheless, there was a guy in the church who, who spoke in tongues from time to time. And they in the church had told him, stop it. If you do it again, if you do it again, uh, you're not welcome here anymore, okay? And so during the week, you know, that Pentecostal preacher got him all whipped up and in the middle of one of the services he broke, he broke out in tongues. And it was an ecstatic utterance, okay? Um, and as we were talking about it later on, it was interesting. The, the, the Pentecostal preacher said this. He said, boy, he really had a well-developed tongue. He has really worked on his tongue speaking. <laughs> you know? And so, again, a, a lot of it is, is, is something that people just do. They develop. They, they learn to speak nonsense. They learn to speak gibberish. Because they believe that that's what tongue speaking is, okay? But again, I would define tongue speaking, and I would argue from the word, that tongue speaking is a miraculous gift of speaking a known language that you have never heard, all right? You may disagree with me on that. That's cool. I'm going to continue, okay? So why is prophecy preferred over tongues? 
And that's the bulk of this text here. Why is prophecy preferred over tongues? Okay? And he gives us several reasons here. The first one is that tongues spoken when nobody can interpret is merely spoken to God. If I sat here and spoke Chinese to you, it wouldn't benefit you a bit, would it? It would just be between me and God because nobody else in this room heard it and was edified by it, okay? So tongues spoken when nobody can interpret is merely spoken to God, he says. But prophecy is spoken to the gathered saints, all right? So when a person prophesies, they're saying, here's what God has said, all right? And you speak it in English, like we're speaking here. If you're in Romania, you speak Romanian or whatever language they speak there, okay? <laughs> so as you look down through there, there's several things that he says in particular that are important here, all right? Particularly look at verse 5. Verse 5 is interesting. He says, now I want you all to speak in tongues. In other words, I think it's great if you speak in tongues. He doesn't say you should speak in tongues or that you have to speak in tongues like the apostolics teach. There are Christian you know, groups that say if you've not spoken in tongues, you're not even saved. He's not saying that at all here, okay? But he's saying, I think it's great if you want to speak in tongues. That's great, he's saying, basically. And he goes on to say there, but even more, prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Verse 6, now brothers, if you come speaking in tongues, how will I benefit? Uh, he goes on and says other things there, okay? So, so prophecy is, is spoken, in other words, it, it's speaking to people in the language they can understand. It's helping people to, to know something about God and themselves in just everyday language. And so that's why he says prophecy is better than tongues. It's preferred over tongues in a worship gathering because people actually understand prophecy. They can hear, they can understand the words that are coming out of the person's mouth, all right? So he says next, just kind of walking through this, next, he says interpretation can, can help tongues, be, can be edifying, but if no interpretation is given, it only benefits God and the speaker's spirit. Now, this is interesting here. So tongue speaking, if, if a person is given the miraculous ability to speak a tongue here, it's not beneficial to the gathered saints. But even the speaker himself is only benefited in his spirit, okay? And not in his mind. That's what he says here. Look at verse 13 through 19. We'll focus in on that. Verse 13 through 19 says this. It says, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that we may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. In other words, my spirit is glad because this miraculous thing is coming out of my mouth that I've never learned, and I'm excited in my spirit because of that, but I have no clue what I'm saying. Okay, And so my mind is not profited by it at all. What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit and pray with my mind. In other words, he's saying I had rather pray in English and get pumped up about it and understand what I'm saying. All right? I'm going to be I want to be excited in my spirit and in my mind, okay? I'll sing praise with my spirit, but I'll also sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anybody in the position of an outsider say amen? Now, you know what the word amen means, right? So be it. So let it be. Or 
Right on, brother. Right, okay? That's what amen means. Now, if someone were to stand up and speak in Chinese right now, we'd be like, I don't know. I can't say amen. I can't say amen. I don't have a clue here, all right? And so that's why he says that it's better in a worship gathering, if you're going if, if, if to manifest gifts here, and the gifts are prophecy or tongues, prefer prophecy, okay? It's also interesting here. I, I love the, I love the, um, the, the illustrations that he gives here. He says, for instance, if, a lifeless, if even lifeless instruments such as a flute or the harp do not give distinct tones, how will you know what is played? So just think for a moment. If I go up to a piano or a guitar right here, and I just take it and strum it, all right? It's going to sound so dissonant. It's, it's not going to make any sense. But if I picked up that thing and I go, down, 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 you might say, what is that? That's Sweet Home Alabama. You know, you're like, I know that one, right? And so basically he's saying, when we speak in tongues, we're like playing a guitar or playing a piano and just flapping at the keys. But when we play a melody on that piano, that's kind of like prophecy because people can understand that. They recognize that. Okay. And even the person that's speaking it recognizes when he speaks prophecy, he knows what he's saying. And so it's better than tongues, he says. All right. Third, he says tongues... Why is tongues better than prophecy? Why is, it preferred over, why, why is prophecy preferred over tongues? He says because tongues is a sign that is, that's intended for unbelievers. So in a worship gathering, the worship gathering is primarily for the building up of whom? The saints. And so if you're in a worship service, he says you should downplay tongues and, and, and play up prophecy. Because tongues are primarily for unbelievers. Think about it again. On the, just picture the day of Pentecost. All these people who had never trusted in Christ, all of a sudden someone is speaking in their language and they hear their language being proclaimed, come to Christ and be saved, repent and be saved. And all of a sudden, 3,000 people were saved. And so he says, you need to understand tongues is primarily a sign for unbelievers. And then finally he says this, why, why is tongues, why is prophecy preferred over tongues and I don't think he's trying to be funny but it's funny it just is he says because if someone were to walk in those doors right there who was not a believer and we were all saying and we were all doing it he would say they would walk out and say these people are insane that's what he says they'll think you're crazy and it actually hurts your reputation, the community, the, the things to, uh, to, to bring about the, 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 uh, the um, spreading of the gospel. So he says we should prefer prophecy because look at this. And this is interesting here. So we want to look at this. Um, down here where he says, verse 24. Verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outside enters, an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. So in other words, maybe, maybe a, a, 
a prophecy would come in this way, right? The, the unbeliever comes in, and all of a sudden, God kind of puts on someone's heart to stand up and speak against, let's say, pornography. And maybe that person is struggling with pornography. All of a sudden, someone stands up and says, God has told us in his word that pornography should not be fooled with. We should not look at pornography. He says this. Look at it here. He is convicted by all, and he is called to account by all. And the secrets of his heart are disclosed. In other words, the secret things maybe that that person was dealing with that was keeping him from coming to God are disclosed. Maybe not even to know for sure what the person is necessarily saying, right? And so falling on his face, look at this. He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. But if he came in and we were speaking, again, Chinese or gibberish, he wouldn't have a clue and he would never be convicted of his sin and repent, okay? Yep. Oh, yeah, I can. They not realize what they were doing was sin. Sure. That's right. Yeah, thank you, David. That's absolutely right. All right. So finally, so finally, practice, if we're going to do this, the, the final P tonight, the fourth P, is practice order in the worship gathering. All right. If we're going to build up the saints, we have to have an orderly service. All right. It's interesting here. Because, again, we're free to order the service however we want. It's interesting here. It seems like he has more of a, of a, more of a participatory approach to the worship, right? You know, and, and this is kind of like how Christy was, you know, with, when we go to visit her dad's church, all right? Everybody comes with something to do, right? You come with a song to sing. You come with, you know, somebody's going to get up and preach, but everybody's going to contribute in some way. Somebody's going to testify or whatever. And it seems that he was kind of, in, in, in Corinth, that's how it kind of was, Right? Um, maybe there was someone, a preacher, that got up and preached, but everybody participated in some way, all right? And so, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting here, but he says, do it in order. Um, just look here again. He says, when you come together, everybody has a hymn, everybody has a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speak in a tongue, let it just be two or three, and each in turn. Don't do it all at once. And if no one's there to interpret, let them keep silent. If, let two or three prophets speak, maybe. Let the others weigh what is said. All right? So, and if another revelation is made to somebody, sit down and let them have a turn, basically. And so he's basically saying, let other people have an opportunity. Don't hog it all. And don't try to do it all at the same time. Let there be understanding and order along with that. So order facilitates understanding, and understanding is what builds us up, okay? So 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21 says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. If there's everyone who says, says I have a prophecy, um, you don't just take it on its word. You test it. And Scripture will always tell you, a, 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 a prophecy that's true will never be against Scripture. All right? It'll never be against Scripture. We test everything and hold fast to what is good. If someone were to stand up and say something, 
and you're like, uh-uh, the Word of God says the opposite of what that dude just said, then you throw it out because it's bad. But if it's good, you hold on to it, okay? So, my final prayer tonight. May we be built up every time we are gathered together in the name of Jesus. Hi there, this is Pastor Ben. I have something really important to ask you, but first, I want to say thank you for taking the time to make this digital connection with us through our podcast. I hope the message you just listened to was a blessing, but an even greater blessing than this digital connection would be for you to connect with us in person this coming Sunday at one of Eastwood's two campuses where we get the joy of living life together in Jesus' name. And now for that really important question, which is the most important question you'll ever answer. Where do you stand before God? Now, based on what you've done, the straightforward answer is that you stand guilty and condemned before God. You are a sinner who completely deserves God's wrath forevermore in hell. And I deserve the same thing also. I mean, every person does. Guys, that's terrible news. And even worse is the fact that there's nothing you can do in and of yourself to change that. You need a Savior. But I have good news. God loved the world so much that He sent Jesus to be your Savior. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you cannot live and he stood condemned on the cross, dying the death you deserve. And three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to prove to everybody that he is indeed the savior of the world. And now Jesus longs to change your standing before God by making a trade with you. He desires to take what you've earned, which is the wrath of God in hell, and to give you in return what he has earned which is the blessing of God in heaven. When this trade happens, instead of standing guilty and condemned before God, you will stand forgiven and righteous with the promise of everlasting life. So what must you do to have your standing before God changed? First, admit to God you are a sinner. Second, hate your sins. Turn from them and ask God to forgive you. And finally, turn to Jesus in faith and love, putting your complete hope in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and follow him until the day you die. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, Jesus is ready to make this trade with you. And I pray that you would trust in Jesus and be saved. Thank you again for connecting with us, and I hope to see you soon at Eastwood Baptist Church.